Welcome to Reputation Town. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Reputation Town podcast. Uh, my name is Warren Weeks, here with John Peranak as usual, and we have a special guest that everyone's going to be super excited about from the US of A, Molly McPherson. Molly, thank you very much for being with us. It's our first one of the year together. Thank you. Happy New Year to both of you. Excited to be here. <laughs> See, Larry David would say you can't say Happy New Year anymore after the 7th, I think, is his cutoff, but uh, Happy New Year to you as well. Paranak, uh, people can't see him, but he has a professional podcast set up. We had some complaints about your audio quality. I know. I was using so, a tin uh, can with a string the last couple of podcasts, so this cool. is an improvement. Wait, did you actually it have complaints? Like, like listeners were complaining? Someone complained, oh. yes. <laughs> it was me, John. Well, we... <laughs> <laughs> She's uh, bought sh shares in Rode. She's trying to get her, her uh, revenues up there. Okay, so we have a whole bunch of stories to to chop up today. And one is uh, the first one we're going to start out with was sent by John, and it relates to Boeing. This is a company that's been in the news uh, significantly over the past five years or so. Uh, everyone will remember the two Max 8 airplanes that crashed. You know, hundreds of people died. The company went through a lot of turmoil. The CEO at the time ended up leaving right around Christmas. They gave him, I think, a $60 million package to go away. Haven't heard a lot about them uh, until recently where they've had all these little missteps. So the door flew off the airplane and there's a big giant hole and people were kind of like, you know, live streaming that cracks in in windshields and, and all that. So the company's had a bit of a different uh, approach. Um, Paranak, did you want to tee this up at all or do you want to go straight to some of the clips we've got? Well, I just, you know, I think the context here was the video that we've got to play a little clip from was an, was an in, internal town hall, I guess the CEO gave uh, in the aftermath of the door door plug falling off that uh, Alaska Airlines plane. And um, I think I think it's interesting to listen just for the, for the first couple of minutes, just to hear his his tone and demeanor as he's dealing with with this, you know, a five alarm crisis for the company. So we'll tee this up and then we will get our um, American Idol panel to rip it apart in vivid detail. Picture. And I hope all of you in some way well, I hope most of you have seen it and those of you who haven't, you look at it. All I could think about, I didn't know what happened to whoever was supposed to be in the seat next to that hole in the airplane. I got kids, I got grandkids, and so do you. This stuff matters. Everything matters. Every detail matters. I know I'm preaching to the choir here. This isn't a lecture not by any stretch. It's nothing more than a reminder of the seriousness with which we have to approach our work. Huge thanks and compliments to the Alaskan Air team that flew the airplane, number one, pilots and crew, who got that airplane back on the ground at a very tumultuous moment in very scary circumstance. They trained their lives to do that, but you don't know till you know. I hope most never know. But this crew, they stood the test and they delivered the airplane back home to us. Alaskan Air leadership. I know firsthand how hard it is for leadership teams to ground airplanes, much less ground fleets. 
and they had to ground every one of the airplanes that had this configuration in their world. And they did it quickly. And that prevented potentially another accident or another moment. We have to know that. So my thanks to this Alaskan Air team, and I believe almost all of our airline customers, they train for these moments and they execute well against this. And it's one of the reasons our industry is as safe uh, as it can be. Um, transparency, let me talk a little bit about what I did today and what I'll keep doing. The members of our team that are with us today, uh, anyway, we'll, we'll stop it there. We're about uh, two and a half minutes in. It goes on for four minutes and 50 seconds, but I think you get a good feel. You can hear his voice. You can hear the pauses. You can hear the stuff he's chatting about. Which one of you wants to start with the Simon Cowell treatment of just analyzing this in vivid detail? I, whenever I hear a CEO giving any type of speech that ends up over the airways or the internet for people to hear, particularly when they are from a crisis-laden uh, brand like Boeing, I'm always suspicious. I, To me, this is scrutiny-proof transparency, uh, at which I do think every, every leader should know that even if something is internal, uh, some type of meeting like that, that everything is going to leak. Uh, I think the CEO, Dave Calhoun, uh, said the right things, had the right tone, that's exactly the script that you would want. You'd make it personal. You'd talk about, you know, how big of a deal it is to you and how important it is. Um, but I, again, like I am a cynic when it comes to these things. It doesn't necessarily mean, though, on the back end, Boeing still have it has issues. They have supply chain issues that are not going away overnight. So I, I feel that this is this is very uh, clarity specific transparency. There, it's it's. I don't want to say it's fully performative, but I feel that they're branding themselves. It's almost like a marketing play. We're branding ourselves as transparency, but as transparent, but I don't know that they are. That's my take. Just to build on that, one of the things I noticed was uh, there was a some stories going around about how, you know, Boeing is um, handling this crisis with a real emphasis on communications, unlike previous crises. And one of the things that struck me was, if everyone's talking about the fact that you're so focused on communications, I think it's kind of missing the ball because, or you know, missing the point because the, the play is, as you said, Molly, on how are we going to fix the operational oversights or issues that led to the problem in the first place? And us talking about all the sort of um, uh, war room activities that are, we're, we're undertaking to protect our reputation is, I don't know, I'm not sure I want the conversation there. I did think he was the right, the right tone and everything. And, and, you know, he, like you said, he personalized it and you could tell he was like deeply, I think, unless he's a really good actor, he seemed really deeply um, genuine in what he was saying. Although this, you know, one of the things I, I noted was it was kind of like he was reading off of like a bullet pointed list of things I've got to, I've got to touch on. I got to hit. Yeah. And, and, he, and, you know, saying the quiet part out loud, like transparency. Yes. Let me talk now about transparency. Like, and, and I think, Transparency is a thing you do, uh, not the thing you like orate specifically about. Anyway, what, what were your thoughts, Warren? <laughs> Man, tough crowd, both of you guys. 
I, I've been a really vocal critic of this company for um, for years now. And in every talk that I had on crisis management, I've used them as an example of what not to do. The, you know, after the second plane crashed, the Max 8, the um, Boeing, I always go to their Twitter page, right? What, how are they handling it? And their, their, their Twitter, the, the, their pinned tweet said something along the lines of, these are really great airplanes. Like we stand behind the quality of these airplanes, like nothing about the families and all the stuff that you kind of heard from, from this guy today. So, and then, um, Dennis Mullenberg didn't make a comment for eight months. I think the, the plane crashes, the dates are a little bit hazy, but I think it was March 10th of 2019 was the second plane crash. And his first formal sort of apology in air quotes was October 30th of the same year. That's a long time. And he even weaseled around it. He said, um, you know, we got some things wrong. That was his apology. When you have hundreds of people whose families and lives are devastated forever. So from what I heard from this guy today, I, I loved it. I thought it was I thought it was really good. And of course, it's it's a little scripted. And of course, he was trained by someone like us. But compared to where they were a couple of years ago, uh, I thought it was a uh, you know, light years ahead of where it was. And I think I'm watching the video. If you, anyone can look it up on YouTube, it looked like he was tearing up a little bit. Like his eyes looked a little glassy. And again, maybe he's going to be carrying home the Oscar come March, but I, I really liked what I was seeing. Now, Molly's point about the operational uh, component of this cannot be overstated. So Maple Leaf Foods, I don't know, does that even mean anything in the States? Maple Leaf Foods had this huge crisis in 2008 23 people died. It's our Tylenol, right? And so I know we're not supposed to talk about the Tylenol one anymore, but why it's held up so so um, so well and so long after is because they did everything right on the operational track and they did everything right on the communications track at the same time. And so his comments are not going to mean very much if doors keep blowing off and if there's uh, more groundings and more problems. And so, and you've seen the stuff with some of the other airlines around diversity and equity and hiring. And so, um, it, it remains to be seen if they're doing both of those things at the same time. I thought it was quite a bit better than what we've seen from that company in the past. So obviously they're, they're reading the tweets. They're listening to Molly on TikTok. They're, they're making some adjustments. And, uh, was it, you know, this is a multi-billion dollar public company. Of course it was kind of made to look like this, but much, much better than the can vacuum add, grade thing, before. Oh, well, can I add one quick thing on this that is interesting that falls along these lines? So, uh, and you probably remember this back when, when the, when it, the first planes went down, when Dennis Muhlenberg took him time, but then he did a video, they placed it on the website. But after I was at a training, uh, right after that happened, and I was using, like you, Warren, I use Boeing as an example. I happened to be in Iowa where Dennis Muhlenberg was from. And someone was from the town where he was from. And what's interesting, and I don't remember the reason why specifically, but there's some, I don't know if he's Dutch or there's something about his background and identity where they're not, they're known for being very, very reserved anyway. So when I talked about him, they said for him, how he was raised in that town in Orange City, it's very difficult for them to be a, a very outward type of communicator. So Boeing is placing an emphasis by hiring Calhoun on communication, but it's like 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 John's pointing mm -hmm. out, if you're talking about transparency, there's there's almost there's such irony to that that you're right. You don't tell people about transparency. It's it's a state of being. It's not something that you do. So I feel like they are. I don't know if this is some 
framing that they want to frame themselves now as the that the we're, we're the Boeing, the communicators, you know, their new slogan. But I just find that interesting that they they're trying harder at comms, but mm. they're not talking about operations, which is what they should be talking about. So and, and to your point, like this is a, a, um, a continuum of activity like right now they're right at the front end and, and the CEO is doing the stuff that needs to get done immediately. So on, on a scale of 10. And being fantastic, one being poor, how would how would each of you guys grade that first performance? I'd give them an eight. I, I like, and I'm comparing it to if if it was just on its own, I think it gets a different score compared to where they were. I give it an eight. I give it a solid I'm eight. I'm giving a five because I have to go right down the middle. I think the comms is good. But I'm I'm a I'm a cynic when it comes to the cover. I they're not talking about operations, supply chain. What the problem actually is? Tell me why there are loose screws on an Alaskan Airlines plane where a like a panel blows off. Why does a panel blow off? So they get a five and they're lucky to get that. Well, the panel blew off because of transparency. <laughs> they wanted to make the exactly. airplane transparent. <laughs> So I'm going to give it a, I'm going to give it a seven for now, but I, to, to your point, Molly, the, the interesting thing I found was, okay, so he today was testifying to Congress. Well, no one will know what today is when this runs, but uh, two weeks after that first video, he testified to Congress and he, his quote, as he was interviewed in the hallway was something to the effect of, we only put a plane in the air for hundred percent confident it's safe. And that is clearly not. Oh yeah, we have do it. Want, okay, do you want to play it? We can play it. Yeah. We fly safe planes. We don't put airplanes in the air that we don't have 100% confidence in. I'm here today in the spirit of transparency to number one, recognize the seriousness of what you just asked. Number two, to share everything I can with our Capitol Hill interests um, and answer all their questions because they have a lot of them. Like, obviously that... That's a, that's a, I can see that written on the key message page, right? And um, and I think it's just at odds with the facts. And so I found that kind of jarring. And so this is makes me wonder whether as time goes on, whether this sort of 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10 that you and I are giving a warrant will actually will actually stay there or for it's going gonna, it's gonna to degrade as they deal with the stuff Molly's talking about. And the last thing I'll just say is... Um, I had, to, I had to laugh because when you hear him said transparency again in this additional interview, yeah, kind of, well, we've, I'm sure we've all had it where we've had the spokesperson we're working with, and uh, they they my key they messages, the yes. And now it's time for my key messages. Yes, I kind of feel like there's a bit of that going on, but he's so much better than the last guy, hundred percent. Yeah, no, no question. And so, and and. and how many people died in the first two plane crashes? Like 400, 400 some? over 400. Yeah. 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 How many people died this one? None. So like it, it, it we're kind of comparing apples and oranges, but I feel like they've made some progress. It's not perfect. Right. Which is funny because you think this company that has untold access, like multi billions of dollars could be, could hire the best help. And, but I, I feel like they've done a, a good job and seven's a cop out. You got to pick eight or six. You can't go with seven. All right, I'm going to go six. Oh, he then. can go with seven, but I'm going to have a one last line. You don't even have to answer to it. But what <laughs> would have happened if a 10 year old boy, the boy that lost the shirt, what if a child was sucked out of that plane? Oh God. What would Boeing be talking about now? Well, they're right? selling the rights to Netflix. Well, yeah, have a, but I mean, think about it. They got so, lucky. They got mm -hmm. lucky. Is it, they got lucky. Is it true that there was no one in those seats? Is that true? The one seat nearest the window. Yeah. 
Now, is that I'm wondering if that was on purpose because they knew something that there was, was wrong with, with the seat. So like, well, maybe the we put someone yeah. that that seems a little shady. Right. I and mean, we're kind of uh, we're kind of speculating at this point, but um, they're making some progress. So your your advice to the guys, basically stop saying transparent and fix the damn airplanes. Yeah, and show proof of yeah, and, and but we also need talking points about operations. We need talking points yeah. about safety. Why are there four bolts on this thing instead of twelve? Yes, and those talking points are written. There's a lawyer there, and they're saying you cannot say you know that they're not safe. So technically, we don't put unsafe planes in the air, but they do. <laughs> the panels blow off. Man. Yeah. So the next one that I'd like to chat about is, and I think everyone has probably seen this by now, but it's the the corporate video of um, internet brands that is trying to get all their employees to come back to work. So this has been a really interesting topic that's, you know, from the pandemic, everyone's working at home and hybrid, this and that. Um, I'm sure you both know people who are working uh, from home. Paranax, sadly, that's not you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You're in the office every time I see you. So we're going to play this video for anyone who hasn't seen it. It's it's bizarre. I really encourage you to go look it up and look at the video because there's about 80 percent of this is visual. But some of the, the lines in here are super cringeworthy. So here is that video. Many of you have come back to the office and we've noticed it's made a big difference. Unfortunately, too big of a group hasn't returned. We're getting more serious about getting everyone back into the office for the simple reason that we're better when we're together. We move faster, we get better results, and the executives are gonna tell you more about that right now. We need you ready and present, and we need it now. Working together face-to-face -face helps us create ideas faster and better, so we have new products and new offerings for our customers. We're able to collaborate and help each other to be better leaders. We all know when we spend more time together, we end up creating better solutions for our clients. It encourages organic breakthrough moments of creativity specifically across teams who haven't worked together in person as much before. It propels us into meeting our business goals, and we definitely have big goals for 2024, and we need your help to accomplish those. We're better when we're together, and we need to be our best to crush our competition. We have been slow in getting back with some people and in some places. That's about to change. Your manager will be in touch with you shortly about how this will be implemented and tracked. Thank you, team. I want to leave you with this. We aren't asking or negotiating at this point. We're informing of how we need to work together going forward. It's, again, for the simple reason that great companies are built by great people working together and seeing each other eye to eye and tackling the big task. Thank you in advance for your help. And it goes on. You see some people actually dancing in a court. I think probably at gunpoint. <laughs> you can't see the guts. But I don't know about you. I was wincing through that whole thing. Um, Molly, do you want to... Give us your perspective on this. I know this is something you've chatted about online. Yes. So I, I did a TikTok about it. And then I also did a live um, in my Patreon uh, where we, we broke down every part of that absolutely cringeworthy video. Um, I mean, just from the beginning, you know, the fact that WebMD is an online medical and news uh, site, you know, it is an online site, uh, but that they put funds towards, uh, you know, this type of corporate video. Uh, also, you know, it is internet brands, but it stained the name of WebMD. It's a WebMD crisis, but it was it was a crisis at the hands of internet uh, brands. 
But there was so many things wrong with it. And because I put it on TikTok, what I love about TikTok is people put things in the in the DMs. Um, so uh, allegedly, uh, all the executives, you know, some who we heard in there, they were all green screened or they weren't in the offices <laughs> when they were when they were doing that. Um, also, you know, just the the wording of it, it, they were threatening employees. You know, we're not this isn't a negotiation. We're informing you, which is another way of saying that you need to come back. And then the other point, too, is when all the blowback happened on it and clearly resoundingly landed with a thud, Internet brands came back and defended it and ended at the end of their statement with the shrug emoji that said, you know, corporate, you know, corporate videos. Yeah. Corporate, you know, with with a shrug. So I there were so many things wrong with it. It's almost like iconic in how bad it was. So you're saying the dancing part at the end didn't make up. Oh, for and then the Ico Ico piece of it, too. I, I, well, one, I don't even know how they got the rights for it. I, I thought that was the Dixie Cup singing it, but I guess it was another version of it. But some people uncovered that it is it does have either Native American roots or Native Indian roots. You know, also some people, you know, claim that came from New Orleans, you know, whatever it is. But at the end of it, they said that the definition was, you know, don't mess with us, you know, something like that. It is absolutely so incredibly out of touch. Also, I mean, getting people back to work is an issue. And I definitely know people working at businesses that who struggle with that. But where we are now with this new generation, the pandemic, businesses need to understand they have to create some hybrid model because that type of a video is really speaks to why the remote work needs to happen because people are going to clap back against it. Your manager will be in touch with you to discuss how this is going to unfold. <laughs> I know, another <laughs> favorite line. And just to be clear, we're not asking. I think I'm like, oh my God, how does, do they not have a communications department? Like how the F did this get I know. out on the internet? Mm -hmm. And how's it still there? Paranak, thoughts? I don't know, Molly, Molly put the best. Although when I first saw it, I thought, well, there's nothing wrong with telling employees it's time to go back. But then as I'm watching it, I'm thinking like, oh, this is this is making me uncomfortable. It, it just was so poorly done. You know, what? I don't know. I think this is not original, but you just like they're adults. You just tell them, you know, here's what here's what the here's what the plan is, guys. Here's what the expectation is. And you can you can, you know, govern yourself accordingly uh, because that's what we expected, you know. You know, I do think as employers, you have to kind of um, make the make the office a, a place people want to come to, um, you know, so you're not sort of dictating you must be here. And then it's, you know, a gulag of, of you know, pain the weather the entire time here. But I think I think um, it's clear that it, like, this organization probably doesn't really care at the end of the day, given the reaction. And so it's probably not a great place to work, perhaps. Oh, yes. I mean, talk about an anti, you know, campaign, an anti come to work for us campaign. But, you know, the other issue, too, is, you know, it's it's real estate has a big part to do with it as well. A lot of these companies need people in the offices, uh, but they're not going to say that. They're not going to say that at all. They're just going to try and uh, encourage them, with my air quotes, slash threaten them to come back. It's, it's funny, the real estate part, because... A lot of the sessions that I'm doing, I was I did one just the other day. I'm in this beautiful, beautiful downtown office, and the only people in the office were the people who were there for the session that day. And you're just wandering around, and there's all this real estate and all these computers and all these desks, and we're just like, "Where is everybody?" Like, oh, so no, you know, no. they're all working from home. So it's um, now. I guess the question is, 
is does this damage the company? Does this damage their 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 family of brands, or is this just an SNL type blip on the radar and kind of a, just a funny thing we'll be laughing about a couple of years from now? Or is there actual lasting damage from this? I, I think there I think there will be, but you know how you measure it is very difficult. But I know one place where you could measure it. You know, people go to WebMD. You know, WebMD has been around for a while, so when people think of internet medical information, they think of WebMD. But since the beginning of WebMD, we've had a lot of other websites. Like I'm thinking like the Mayo Clinic, for instance, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, these medical facilities are getting into the medical information game and the SEO on it is very, very good. I think someone might look at a WebMD and the information coming out of there is important. So if you've lost the trust of the company that runs it, you may lose the trust of the information being put out by the company. Any other thoughts on this one, Paranak, before we move along? I'd just be curious to know from you guys. So this is a like in the weeds tactical question, but is green screening a thing anyone should be doing anymore? Like it's for for the, for a while at the start of the pandemic when everyone was working from home, it seemed like, oh, that's an interesting way of concealing where you're working from. I don't know. What do you guys think? Is it should you be doing that as a corporate? Uh, spokesperson. Well, it's so de- well in this case, it's so deceptive. Come back in, but they're not in as we film this. It's incredibly <laughs> <Man>. deceptive, <laughs> man, and cheesy um, and right. cheesy. <clears throat> it's uh, it seems like one of those SNL digital shorts. That's what it looks like. <laughs> yes. uh, oh, you know what? I mean, it wouldn't be surprised if they actually make fun. Oh, they probably will. Yeah. The next one I want to talk about is this is one that Molly uh, brought to our attention and uh, you've talked about this online with your audience as well, but it's the uh, kite baby. This is a uh, clothing for babies, I guess, made out of bamboo or something. This is probably not their slogan, but that's basically the company. Um, they got in trouble recently. There was an employee who made a request related to her uh, baby and the company handled it a little poorly and then it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Molly, do you want to give us a little overview of what took place here and why it's so egregious? And then we have the um, the two apologies of the of the president kind of teed up, so we'll, we can play those once you've given us a little overview. Yeah, why why I find this story interesting is because it's one in a series in the last few weeks of HR becoming a PR nightmare. And how it spills, you know, we just talked about WebMD and internet brands, but, you know, in short, we have, uh, we have a CEO, small business, baby clothing, as you said, Warren, uh, we had an, an employee, new mom, uh, she wanted to adopt, she was planning on adopting a child, the child comes 22 weeks early, and the CEO told the employee, you cannot come back to work unless you agree to work for six months, but you have to be in the office. So it's a very similar, you know, type of a story. The um, the employee's sister went on a TikTok live and told people about it, and it went off from there. Now, why I find it fascinating, most people don't care about baby clothing companies, you know, unless you, you know, are a mother. But that's part of the element that's so interesting. It hits mom talk, so it hits the algorithm. It hits uh, a, a segment of people that get very, very passionate, you know, motherhood. Then adopt, you know, talking about adoption and preemies, it touched so many pain points of so many different people that it became a bigger crisis than it should be. No one's, if you're not a new parent, you've never heard of this brand, but it also speaks to the video apology. I'm someone now who contends that I don't think they're effective and I think they're more damaging. 
Uh, there's only one small group, a segment of people who I think can get away with it if they're if they're creators who happen to be online a lot and they connect with their audiences that way. But these these YouTuber type apologies aren't working. So that's why I find this particular crisis an interesting one. It's one of this time. So why don't why don't we play uh, apology number one, and then we'll talk about what happened because it just it just got uh, eviscerated online, and then we'll tee up the second one. They're all they're both pretty short. Uh, for context, this is on TikTok. The first apology has two point nine million views. The second one has six point two. So this is not a small story. Hey guys, it's Ying. I wanted to hop on here to sincerely apologize to Marissa for how her parental leave was communicated and handled in the midst of her incredible journey of adoption and starting a family. I have been trying to reach out to her to apologize directly as well. Kaibaby prides itself in being a family-oriented company. We treat biological and non-biological parents equally. Through both my personal and professional experiences, I have the utmost respect for babies, families, and the adoption community. However, such respect and good intentions were not fully communicated to Marissa in the discussion of her parental leave. It was my oversight that she didn't feel supported as we always have intended. As offered to her originally, we would find her a position whenever she decides to return to work. I also want to apologize to our kite community. I want to assure you that as the company's owner, I anyway, it continues uh, in that vein for another 20 seconds or so, but you get the gist, uh, the comments, the 5,100 comments at this point in time. And a lot of them were you're reading, this sounds fake. This is not genuine. This is BS. And then a lot of the comments, it is a pretty mean group, I will say. They're giving the names of the competition and the fact that they just ordered their baby clothes from the, the competition. So that's apology number one. And then uh, we'll just play a little bit of apology number two, because obviously this one didn't work well. And then we will um, uh, chop these up a little bit. Here's the second apology. And it's a whole different look. The first one, makeup, poise. The second one is a frantic person just addressing the camera. Okay, I'm going to do this. So... I just posted a official apology on TikTok and the comments were right. It was scripted. I memorized it. I, I just basically just read it. It wasn't sincere. And I've decided to go off script and just tell you exactly what happened. I've been thinking about what went wrong. And I think sincerely what went wrong was how we treated Marissa and I was the one that made the decision to veto her request to go remote um, while she has to stay in the queue to take care of her adopted uh, baby. And when I think back, this was a terrible decision. I was insensitive, selfish, and was only focused on the fact that her job was um, had always been done on site and I did not. Okay. And it continues along. You know, you can look it up. It's a four minute video, but I think you get a good flavor of, of both of those. Um, and, and, and Molly, since you brought us this story, why don't you kind of sum this all up and what do you think is going on here? What's with the two apologies? Just uh, shine some light on this for us. Yeah. I think there's a real practical communication crisis management lesson here. If you listen to the messaging and the first apology, it was pretty good. Someone wrote it for her, but you can't hear it because you're so caught up 
seeing and listening to the stilted delivery, how how robotic that she looks on camera, how inauthentic it actually was. And then the second one where she was more normal, more more of a of a um a mood that would that would resemble someone who is frantic and crazy. So the takeaway here for me is you know, there are two types of apologies. There's authentic and then there's instrumental, which is strategic. And and anyone who tries a strategic apology, particularly nowadays, it fails. It almost is a guaranteed failure. So that is the whole lesson that I take out of that is what people need um, for a true authentic apology. And so you thought the second one was, but it was, by that point, it's kind of too late. It was, it was so late at that point. But what also is interesting too, though, is there are people there in the minority because no one likes to counter what you know mom talk or what the algorithm is is swaying people towards. She was she had not earned her FMLA yet. You know she had not worked there long enough to get some of the you know the rewards. Which compared to Canada, I mean, much yeah. much different. It's it's <laughs> tough. We're the our country is tough on new mothers. That is for sure. So it's not fair to that new employee, but it is interesting. I mean, she was a newer employee and we, and Warren, you and I know this, when you run a small business, your margins can be very, very thin. So there is the other side, but no one's ever going to listen or see the other side or speak out in defense of her because they're going to be swallowed, you know, by this angry mob of people. Well, the same thing. I thought the first one was like, so, you know, um, the, the hostage video style uh apology that, that you often see the second one like i think she was like obviously more genuine given she was just talking off the cuff but she, talk about self-flagellation like she was just like yeah going over the top with so so a bit much on that perspective the thing the thing i find interesting though is that um even with a good apology the when you see the way that online communities react to these things it, it's not necessarily going to turn it off, right? Um, uh, mind you, a poor performance just makes it worse. But I think uh, sometimes people have this perception that okay, even if I get it perfectly, if I get it perfectly right, that's going to solve my problem. And uh, the reality is, is that it doesn't actually. And you could you could really stick the landing with this kind of apology, and uh, you're still going to have like a um, sort of the um, uh, the, the the online community just continue to pile on, uh, but and that's where you just have to have, sometimes have to think about okay, so what am I? What else am I going to do beyond apologizing to help demonstrate that I'm committed to the values that I really am talking about in my apology, or you know, um, or frankly, just like yeah, have the have the the internal uh fortitude to say i'm going to stick through this and i'm, I'm just going to like ride it out for a small business that can be really hard though and especially when you know you're in a in a business like this where there's a lot of different you know um other companies that offer the same thing and people can easily just choose to go elsewhere um but uh, i don't know warren did you did you see anything um that uh, struck you in those as as I'm watching this whole, and it's, I literally found out about it today and checked out all the videos and trying to get uh, get up to speed on it. Um, I've done some work with the company called Gymshark that's over in the UK. Your, your kids probably wear all their, mm -hmm. their clothing and got to go over to their office. It's a, an unbelievable place, their kind of headquarters. And they have these big slogans on the wall throughout the business in terms of their philosophy and stuff. And one of them that I thought was hilarious is don't be a dickhead. 
just this big giant thing on the wall. Just whatever you're doing in business and however successful you get, just don't be a dickhead. And I feel like a little bit of don't be a dickhead is much more valuable than the the layers of apology and after the fact. And, you know, um, as, as a leader of a company, I'm sure she had no idea that this was going to become as big as it did. But, you know, all you you will both know that when we're kind of coming up in our careers and you're working for clients and you're getting things coming in, not every complaint is the same, right? There's certain elements that when you put this recipe together, that's just like nuclear, like this story. And to me, it's um, when you have someone adopting a baby that's in neonatal intensive care and they ask for uh, a bit of a courtesy and they're immediately fired. That has all the elements to me of a story that can, could not necessarily is going to, but it could blow up. And that's, that's what you're seeing here. So, um, you know, Molly, you're right. Like in Canada, I know people who've had 18 months off for maternity leave. And I know in the States, like you're showing up with your baby under your arm a couple days later. Like, I'm, I don't know exactly what the, the rules are there, but somewhere in the middle it's, and because everyone has a media company in their pocket, they have these phones, you're, you gotta be on, you gotta be on your best behavior. You have to show integrity. You have to treat your people. Well, um, we're going to, the next story we're going to be talking about is another version of this. And so, um, I feel some empathy for this woman, um, but in my heart, I feel like the only reason she's doing these apologies is because she's seeing her business, her revenues just tank. Her Shopify store is has gone from thousands of transactions to dozens of them, and people are naming her competitors. I think that's why she's giving the apology, not because she actually is sincerely sorry. I don't know her. I may be wrong, but that's kind of my read on this. Yeah, well, I think it's the next story that you're going to talk about, though, is it shows a different environment and a different take from the company. So I think it's interesting to put these two next to each other. So on that note, this is the Cloudflare employee. And I have to say, this is a company that I'd not really heard of, wasn't sure what they did. And uh, we'll get into that. So there's an employee, her name's Brittany, and she uh, got a heads up. She's on their sales team and she got a heads up from some of her colleagues that they were setting up 15 minute Zoom calls and everyone was being laid off. And so you know, as more power to her, she takes her phone. I don't even know if this is legal, but it should, <laughs> it's too late now. She took her phone and kind of propped it up. So it's facing her. It's only capturing her visual of her, but audio of this meeting. The video goes on for nine minutes. Most of you have probably heard or seen this in some way, shape or form, because it's got a ton of coverage. We'll play just a little bit of the video until she kind of takes the steering wheel. And then we'll talk a little bit about the uh, company's response. And just the whole thing has a bit of a weird flavor from an HR and a PR standpoint. Hey, Brittany. Hi. Yes, I'm so sorry. Uh, my name's Rosie. I'm just uh, joining the call. Um, nice to meet you. I'm on the HR team. Mm -hmm. Hi, Brittany. Hi. Thanks for meeting with me and Rosie. Um, we have an important meeting today. Uh, we finished our evaluations of 2023 performance. This is where you have not met Cloudflare expectations for performance. We've decided to part ways with you. Yeah, I'm gonna stop you right there. Sure. Um, so I started August 25th. I've been on a three month ramp. And then it was three weeks of December and then a week of Christmas. And then here we are. Um, I have had the highest activity amongst my team. 
Um, since I've started, I have had three contracts out, done a really great job managing my deals up until the very end that decided not to close last minute. Um, so I don't think that that makes a lot of sense for me in my Cloudflare journey here so far. Also, um, every single one-on-one -on -one I've had with my manager, every conversation I've had with him, has he has been giving me nothing but I am doing a great job, I have had great activity, I have really great meetings, I'm picking up the products very quickly, and um, things have been going really, really well. I make really great relationships with my clients. Um, so I disagree that my performance hasn't been, um, I haven't met performance expectations um, when I certainly have just because I haven't closed anything officially. I hear you. Um, also, you. why are you doing this and not my manager? Not, you know, we've never met. So this seems a little odd that. And it goes on for another seven minutes, but I think it gives you a good flavor of the call. I found myself getting weirdly emotional watching this because you see these announcements, you know, a thousand people laid off 4,000 when, when you see the visual and hear the voice of an actual person, it's, it's, it's tough. So the CEO of the company responds and it was kind of an unofficial response. So he didn't actually tweet or post anything. It was a response to someone else. So the replies kind of get tucked in. It's a bit of a Weasley way, but I'll, I'll read his response. And then I'd love to get both of your, uh, your takes on this. His name's Matthew Prince. And he says, we fired about 40 salespeople out of over 1,500 in our go-to-market org. That's a normal quarter. When we're doing performance management right, we can often tell within three months or less of a sales hire, even during the holidays, whether they're going to be successful or not. Sadly, we don't hire perfectly. We try to fire perfectly. In this case, clearly we were far from perfect. The video is painful for me to watch. Managers should always be involved. HR should be involved, but it shouldn't be outsourced to them. No employee should ever be surprised they weren't performing. We don't always get it right. And sometimes underperforming employees don't actually listen to the feedback they've gotten before we let them go. Importantly, just because we fire someone doesn't mean they're a bad employee. It doesn't mean um, it doesn't mean won't be really, really great somewhere else. Chris Paul was a bad fit for the Suns. <laughs> Sorry, editorial laugh. Um, but he's undoubtedly a great basketball player. And in fact, we think the right thing to do is get people we know are unlikely to succeed off the team as quickly as possible so they can find the right place for them. We definitely weren't anywhere close to perfect in this case, but any healthy organization needs to get the people who aren't performing off. That wasn't the mistake here. The mistake was not being more kind and humane as we did. And that's something any uh, tag someone and I are focused on improving going forward. All right, Molly, you're our guest today. Let her rip. Oh, I am right down the middle on this one. Uh, well, one, just from an instructional point of view, again, we have Gen Z writing the rules. They're writing the playbook for how to treat uh, Gen Z in an HR uh, situation. Uh, as the CEO pointed out that they, you know, that that process, whatever system they have in place for letting um, employees go is either an antiquated one or just, you know, doesn't do the job. Uh, pretty savvy on her part. Uh, Warren, you mentioned how uh, Matt Prince, the CEO, how he his official response. So the company Cloudflare did come out with a response. I think it was in Inc. Magazine. They had an official corporate, you know, response. Okay. And then he replied, as you noted, to someone else's uh, tweet, which I'm noticing other companies do that now. And I think there is a savviness to that because then it's not an official response. 
It's just an it's official response find, to, you can't find it. And it's an official response to a tweet. So you can't be held at the same level of accountability with that. But the framing in both, they threw her both, they threw her under the bus. I mean, they essentially said she didn't measure up to her expectations. Now, the reason why I'm down the middle on it is that could 100% be true. You know, we're just hearing yeah. what she's saying and what her evidence is. It doesn't look good, uh, but, you know, maybe she didn't do it. I mean, the fact that he said it in that statement and throwing Chris Paul in the mix. I mean, that I don't, is that some weird diversion? I don't know. Why, why deflect there? But again, so that's that's my feeling on it. I, I, I did content, commentary on it and I see both sides of it, honestly. So the thing that struck me was if you have to lay people off, you can just lay people off just not for cause, just because revenues are down or we didn't meet our targets or we have to downsize, whatever the case may be. The fact that they tied it to performance, they created their own problem for them. And this is where kind of where I think the inter intersection of communications um, with HR and legal uh, is often the benefit. Um, by, by, by planning these things ahead of time, you could avoid this situation entirely. Um, because all her arguments about performance are moot if the layoffs are a result of, you know, unfortunately we had to make this difficult decision and uh, I was sorry to see you go. Um, having said that, um, you know, this just shows how to your point, Molly, and to what you were saying earlier, Warren, you kind of always have to be prepared that this could be the outcome because especially if you're a large organization and you're, you're doing many layoffs, you're going to be doing these meetings over and over again, sometimes in the hundreds, are they all going to go super smoothly? Maybe not. And and people could be recording them and then dumping that onto the internet. As we've seen many times, like what, remember that company we talked about a couple of years ago now, Warren, or what a year ago, uh, the, the housing company where he fired, uh, the CEO fired 800 people at one time over a zoom call. Uh, I think I, by the way, that company went <laughs> from being something like worth $19 billion to almost nothing. Um, uh, in and in, uh, in the last couple uh, last couple months, at any rate, um, certainly not uh, the way to manage the layoffs and um, uh, a peculiar way of of dealing with the aftermath, for sure. You know, I'll just chime in though. You never know with unemployment. Uh, so whether it's a firing or layoff, there's implications. There, there. could be implications, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys remember the um, the? Dave Carroll, the guy who had the guitar with United Airlines, mm -hmm. and they broke his guitar, and he kept calling and calling and calling. This is 2009, and uh, he's from Eastern Canada. Ma, do you remember the story or no? Uh, is he the one? He's not the one who, uh, no, I don't think I remember it, no. He uh, He's not the one that they beat up. That was a different No, guy. no, no. I was thinking, <laughs> did he start like a blog or something? But maybe. He started, he wrote a song called oh, United Breaks okay. Guitars. And no, it was the first. I didn't know about this. It's got, I think, like 19 million views plus. Like, that's his new job now. He was a musician. He had this beautiful guitar that he um, saw the baggage handlers just firing, and, and they ended up breaking it. And United Airlines basically like, screw you. We're not going to fix your guitar. So he writes this song, and he puts it up on YouTube, the internet, whatever social media is back then. And it goes crazy to the point where it's covered on ABC, NBC, CBS, Evening News. Like, oh, my God, the consumer has a voice. And United Airlines goes back to the guy and says, oh, hey, we'll fix your guitar now. And of course, by then it's too late. So here we are, like some like almost 15 years later. And to me, this this is an example of that on steroids. And 
it goes back to the whole don't be a dickhead. Like his his note was kind of BS and the basketball thing was weird and throwing her under the bus again is is not great. But he he sums it up in saying the mistake was not being more kind and humane as we did. That's to me the mistake. Like, Why is her manager not doing this? Right. Why you have two strangers popping in on Zoom like the Brady Bunch and, and, and getting rid of you? So if you run a company, if you're a manager, every little micro transaction that you have with someone, it just you got to be your best self because these things can end up blowing up and, 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 and showing up online. And so it's 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 a high bar. Yeah, it is. And you're going to see a lot more of these things. And again, this one had all the different elements from the way that she captured it to the look in her eyes. And she almost starts crying at one point. It's uh, it's captivating stuff. And to me, I don't know who this guy is. I don't like him because of this. He could be a fantastic guy, great friend. And his response, I thought, was a little too bro for me. And it was uh, the the basketball reference was a little just disingenuous. And uh, if I'm if I'm related to this to, to this young lady, I'm I'm furious at this guy because it's just it could be handled better. I love that you called him a bro. That's exactly what I was thinking. But I will say this because when I did a commentary on this one. I'm noticing now, particularly, you know, just where we are culture-wise, I've noticed since Bud Light, uh, who technically got through the crisis. I mean, they're, 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 Bud Light is still down. Sales are definitely still down. But the beer industry is down. They, I'm noticing now that there is a model where leaders push back. This has not, this didn't happen before. So this isn't Kite Baby. But now Cloudflare is doing the bro move, the Bud Light move of the CEO, Brandon Wentworth, saying, nope, I, I, we're going to we're going to push back. That's what I find most interesting about this story. We're I'm noticing that there's people are now not people are more fear less when it comes to putting the truth you know, out there. Oh, yeah, mm. you're going to do that. You're going to take me down. OK, well, I'm just going to tell everybody that you're a poor employee. So that's the little nugget that I take out of this too. Well, isn't that isn't that a sort of a byproduct of the Trump first Trump presidency? Yep. I mean, I, I you could time it <laughs> to insurrect. I mean, really, from the insurrection. I mean, from tw from twenty twenty three, we started off with this kind of a mindset, and now, you know, former President Trump, Iowa caucus, New Hampshire. I, I mean, so I, there's something culturally happening too that I think affects reputation. Well, I think, Did you say for, former President Trump or future President Trump? I didn't hear you. I said former. Both. I think it could be both. Could be. It could be. Could <laughs> but be. Uh, but you know the, the um, we're also seeing this in a pushback against things like um, uh, diversity and inclusion, right? We've seen just in in the past couple of weeks, um, you know, CEOs and others, you know, saying maybe this got a bit too far. Like I think I think this is very interesting from a corporate communications perspective, because, you know, once you get these waves of, um, uh, of influence crashing over companies and organizations where we have to recognize certain things and now the pendulum may be swinging back a bit. And I think for some communicators and CEOs, there's going to be the decision of, okay, where, what is the right medium, the happy medium? Like maybe we don't go in on all in on these things. Like we thought we, was it the right thing to do? And especially with a, a younger uh, workforce who maybe expect these things to happen and expect organizations to take positions like you, you more and you and I talked about this with Disney a while ago too, right? When Disney got itself into hot water. Um, I, I don't know where that's obviously going to net out, but I just find as a, as an observation, as communicators, that is going to be something that 
I think will be increasingly challenging, um, particularly if we do get back to another President Trump. I think it's going to really be a very um, uh, uh, unprecedented territory if we get there. Yeah. And if you take the political out of it, also the pushback, that's Gen Z. I mean, that's what Brittany did. She pushed back against an entire company. So I think as communicators, this is a, a thesis I've been working on now for a bit. Um, thinking about it, I think we as communicators now need to speak to that. Whereas in 2020, it was it was all about diversity hires and diversity jobs. And we have to message diversity. And we, you know, the communicators are trying to tell boards and leaders, no, this is important that we talk about this. Now, as communicators, I think we have to read the room, so to speak. And but still. We have to advocate for transparency, not say it, but we got to show it and do it. Yeah. Oh, my God. I also mentioned uh, I wanted to mention about the uh, the kite baby story that I had written down. I forgot to mention when we were talking about it. Fun fact, the the woman, uh, Melissa, I think, who had been fired, set up a GoFundMe page. Does anybody know approximately how much she's raised from that? No, I know. Ninety six thousand U.S. dollars. Seems right. Or as we call it in Canada, $130,000. <laughs> and that'll buy you, that'll buy you three baskets of groceries in Canada right now. So, um, and, and that's, I think part of the reason she didn't say take her job back. She's like, I don't need it yeah, for a couple right, of years. Exactly. So, anyway, I want, I think this is a really good segue to talk about the Bill Ackman story. So if you don't know who Bill Ackman is, he's a billionaire hedge fund manager, Pershing Square Capitals, the, the company that he uh, manages. Really tall guy with kind of white hair, very kind of outspoken recently. And um, he, he's in a bit of a, a scuffle with Business Insider, the, the magazine. So you have to go back to those three presidents of, was it um, Harvard, MIT, and Penn with the whole genocide and all that. And um, Bill Ackman took a pretty active role on social media going after them uh, and trying to hold these people accountable for their, their failure in this very public, uh, public domain. And so two of those uh, presidents have gone one still around. And then you fast forward a couple months and business insider, the magazine, um, and you remember the whole plagiarism accusations and everything else around uh, the president of Harvard. And so business insider goes and takes the, um, the writings of Bill Ackman's wife and puts it through this software and finds uh, a couple very tiny instances where she had kind of paraphrased something from Wikipedia or something. And so they made this huge thing about it. And if you're, if you find yourself, you can't sleep some night, go and look up Bill Ackman's post because some of them are, I think like 5,000 words long. They're very, very long on Twitter, super detailed. Like they've awoken a beast in this guy and he's coming to the defense of his wife. His basic premise is, you want to come after me, that's fine. You don't go after family members. You don't go after loved ones. You don't go after kids. You don't go after spouses. That's what they did. And so he is in, I think this is an existential battle for Business Insider and the folks who who own it. And it brings up, as far as I'm concerned, a whole bunch of um, ideas and questions and conundrums. Um, is this the right thing to do? Paranak, we'll start with you with this one. Uh, how familiar are you with this? Do you think that this is wise for him to be doing? What do you think? Do you think Business Insider is going to be around in a year? Or is this another Hulk Hogan uh, Gawker situation? So he's used to this, right? Um, I don't know if you remember, um, remember I'm going to say at least five years ago, probably maybe as much as 10, he had taken a big short position in this company called Herbalife. And he was convinced it was... Um, the company wasn't worth as much as uh, it was trading at. And he, like like many um, 
private equity firms do who specialize in this, like put together like a dossier to argue the case of why Herbalife wasn't um, worth what it was. Um, obviously, he makes money if the stock price goes down, if you short the stock. So, and and he used the media, he used, the, he used you know, uh, Rojo's speeches, like the whole um, communications ecosystem to drive this message of Herbalife. Now, he ended up losing that, and I think he lost money in the in the process. But I'm just highlight that because he's not a stranger to using the media and using communications to drive business goals. In this case, like he was like he was very dogged in calling out the three CEOs, MIT, Harvard, and Penn, who testified to Congress and when um, um, were asked the question, you know, about um, um, if they're policies at the universities against uh, harassment um, would allow someone to say advocate for the extermination of Jews. Uh, and they all sort of tripped up over that. Um, he went hard and, and like one after each one of them, one by one. And he was particularly hard in going after the president of, of Harvard. And, you know, that's when Business Insider started this sort of counter counter initiative uh, at whose behest, who knows? Um, but um, uh, I think he has the money, as you said, Warren, as we when we started out, and he also has the I think patience to outlast um, outlast these guys because I think um, you know we, we have that old saying you know you can't fight people who buy a paper by the by the ton and ink by their barrel. In this case, actually, I think he has has the wherewithal to outlast. <laughs> This, this, uh, I'm not gonna call it a media outlet. Like I, uh, I think there are organizations like Business Insider, and there's a bunch of Canadian websites like this where there are there are information websites. I would don't put them on the same par as traditional journalists who operate by what we would consider more traditional journalism standards. But at any rate, I think um, if I was the people at Business Insider, I might be really concerned about um, about where this all goes. It is such an interesting story, but I see it less as a business story and more about a man, albeit a very wealthy one, with egg dripping off his face. This is a man who was humiliated and humiliated his wife. I mean, when he talks about uh, accusing people of, you know, going after family, going after your kids, you can't do that. Uh, he's the one who caused it. He's the one who wrote at to Sally in reference to uh, the MIT president, who's the only one out of the three, you know, who still has her job. He opened the door for all of this. And it's not as if he's going after the L.A. Times, uh, who's absolutely ransacked their newsroom. I mean, they've laid off everyone. John's absolutely right. Like Business Insider. You know, that's a website where they hire young writers. I mean, whenever I get interviewed by Business Insider, it is someone who feels like they're they're talented, but they're all young. They don't have to pay them a lot of a lot of money. They're great writers. So, yeah, it, yeah, it may get buried. But like a lot of you know outlets now, you know, we, it is a, it is a troubling time. So I think he's riding the wave of online journalism, journalism in general, you know, struggling um, but he's just absolutely humiliated. And what do you do when you've been humiliated, when a powerful egocentric person's been humiliated? They create a distraction, they blame shift, and they do everything else. I think this is a personal story about hubris. 
And what happens? That, that's a very interesting take. I, cause I, when I, when I, when you say egg on his face, I'm like, from what, like what, you know, he went after the presidents of the universities. We didn't go after their families. He didn't go after their kids. No, but accused them of their being plagiarists. And then his well, wife. And it turns out, it turns out that it, they, that he was correct. They were plagiarists. Well, there was numerous as, examples. As was, as was his wife. Well, technically if, if you read through his 5,000 word treaties, it's not exactly, it's not exactly the same. Like he breaks down, and again, this is a guy who has teams of people working on this shit, which is a whole other story yeah, because you yeah. know most of us would not have access to this. You just have to take your lumps, put your head down, and uh, and go away. Or if you're uh, Generation Z, you'd videotape and put it on the internet. But looking at, um, if you try to compare apples to apples, he's saying that with the president of Harvard, for example, the the instances and the percentages and the the intention, basically, like plagiarism is an intention. Did you try? to pass someone else's work off as your own. That's, that's, that's fraud. And he makes a case that he's, and I'm buying it where he says, if he takes his wife's writing and of all of it, the percentage is minuscule. And it was related to a very vague reference to Wikipedia. And then she, I think she had referenced some author without, uh, without attributing them and, but had talked about that person like eight other times in the paper. So he, he's basically saying this is not, these are not the same thing. Like one of them is a kind of a clerical situation and um, it was related to Wikipedia, which they didn't even have a policy on at the time. Right. And so I'm not trying to be an apologist for a billionaire hedge fund manager, but um, I, I, I see this as, um, you know, I always tell people in our sessions and it's becoming harder to do, but I say like, look, most journalists are not out to get you. They just want to tell a story. They want mm -hmm. to do their, their job. And you see more instances, and I think it's because of this deterioration of the news and the fact that it's struggling and places are going out of business, that um, a story like this creates clicks, creates revenue, creates attention. And uh, so to me, this is a personal attack. And I, it reminds me of the movie The Godfather, like you don't go after the family. And oh. a year from now... I would say that this 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 uh, publication is not around anymore. Well, yeah. Now that's interesting that you said The Godfather because I was thinking of the same plot of the same movie, but a different angle from that movie. Hmm. Now I wrote a piece for Forbes.com about the firing, you know, or you know that two of the presidents lost their job. Now yeah. Dr. Gay was beloved by faculty, you know, at Harvard, absolutely beloved, and those those three presidents were were put up there. Uh, with talking points that were manufactured for them by a lawyer from the Harvard Corporation, the, legalese talking points. So they they were they were brought out there to slaughter. They were not speaking of their own volition, but someone else's talking points. But like his wife, Dr. Gay, now granted her number is like 40, 47, something like that, and hers is a few. Many of hers were that kind of language plagiarism. It's kind of the similar thing. These are not like big idea plagiarism. I mean, this is like these academic nuances. So the reason where I see it, and maybe probably maybe part of it's just being a female or because I dove so deeply uh. on these university presidents, this was a man who was humiliated in public. So he was going scorched earth. You know, I don't see it as humiliated. I see it as disrespected. And I think it's the other side of the same coin. But like, how dare you go after someone in my family? Come after me all day long. Don't come after her. Like that's I don't see that. Well, as why couldn't the I president of MIT's 
uh, the, the family of the MIT president, Sally Crumble's uh, uh, her name, um, why couldn't yeah. they say the same thing to him? You're coming after our mom. You know, you're coming after my wife. They could say but the same her, thing. The, the mom was the one in the spotlight. She was there with the microphone. And, you know, the fact that they had talking points from lawyers, these are people making a million dollars a year. And the president of Harvard is still making a million dollars a year just in her former role. She's not the president anymore. So no, she's not like, you know, she's not sitting on a couch watching Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, true. Um, but like Sally Kornbluth from um, MIT, I mean, these women, well, they were women, university president is true. But university presidents do not act on their own volition. It's one of the most difficult jobs you could have as being a university president. It's not only you're running an institution. Your job is to make money. But your job is to report to a board. They do not have full um, independence in what they do. They are told what to do. But in this case, they were additionally told what to say. So to come after, it's not as if Sally Crumble did anything wrong. Yet he put that tweet at two, Sally, he started this. I mean, he started it. So I look at it as it was a bit of a comeuppance as well. You go after the players in the arena. You don't go after the people in the stands. That's that's kind of how I see it. And those three wasn't there. There was a there was a fourth university that was asked. I forget. Was it like Cornell or something? It was, it was were, three. It was Penn, uh, MIT and Harvard. But a fourth was asked oh, really? to go. Oh, to and go. They said, oh, and they, and they said, uh, they just said, no, thanks. We're not going to that. <laughs> like, oh, I did the smartest ones of the bunch. I'm going to sound like a, I'm going to sound like a, uh, some sort of megalomaniac, but I think the mistake that, um, that he made was shifting the discussion from anti-Semitism to the plagiarism, to the plagiarism thing. Like had he kept, he didn't, around, he didn't do it though. He didn't do it. No, no, it, it so, came up separately. And he jumped, and on he it. jumped on it. Yeah. And, and I think he like, sometimes people think that they think, oh, if I, if I broaden my my attack to more than one thing, it's going to make it more effective meeting my goal. In fact, what it did was it changed the whole conversation to one that led into all these other complicated areas. And um, I don't know. I think he should have just stayed with the, the the raw meat, which was he had the video evidence of each of those uh, university presidents um, impaling themselves in Congress. And they should have just stuck with that if that was his goal to to get rid of them. So. Right now, Bill Ackman has a team of nerds going through everything that has been written by everyone who works for all of those schools. Yeah. And we're going to see it someday. Not yet. It's coming out. And um, it's I think it's pretty rampant because when people are like, you know, plagiarizing their essay or their thesis back in you know 2006, they're not thinking of <laughs> AI and all this other stuff. So yeah. this is going to be very interesting to see what happens or um, a contrarian opinion. <laughs> And I'm not saying this will happen, but it, we might find that in three months we haven't heard anything and it just goes away and it's not it's just it never materializes. Which is what he may want it to do, too, because yeah. it's he's humiliated. But then again, you know, it's interesting. We both have two sides. Um, I don't think he's humiliated. I this is it, like I do. If you if you've seen the movie Wall Street, this is like punching Gordon Gecko in the balls. Like, why would you do that? Like he the ultimate counter puncher. And with unlimited wealth, he's he's a Wall Street guy. Like this is, what are you doing? Like just this is not smart. No, it's very very unstrategic though. I think, yeah. I think he yeah. he saw a target of opportunity and without really thinking through the end game, uh, latched onto it. And he shouldn't have done that. If he again, let's keep the target the 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 mission on target and the mission straight off target. And now yeah. deep deep 
12 months from now, does Business Insider exist in its current form? Or is there a headstone with Business Insider on it? Well, and if that happens, though, are they going to credit him? You know, when maybe this was something that could have even happened anyway. I don't know. I think it's an emotional. I think he's emotional. And the, like they say in The Godfather, Warren, this is what I was going to say. Remember, <laughs> it's business. Don't, you can't, don't take it personally. It's business. And that's where I think he did. He made it personal. All right. We had, uh, we had a couple more, uh, the Trudeau. Do we, why don't we, why don't we wrap up with that? A little palate cleanser just before we go, we'll dabble in the world of politics. Um, Justin Trudeau, whose character arc seems to be coming to a flaming end here in Canada. People were chanting F Trudeau in Toronto at the UFC fights last week. I don't know if you saw that. He got himself in a little hot water related to a recent vacation. Everyone's entitled to a vacation. Even uh, world leaders need a little downtime, but he got himself into some ethics trouble. Paranak, you're the uh, political wonk. Why don't you give us an overview of this one and we'll close it up on the Justin Trudeau story. This is more of a comms failure than the Justin Trudeau who did something dumb failure, but he was taking a Christmas vacation with his family. Uh, before the trip, He had, his office put out a statement that said, uh, that Trudeau would be paying for his own accommodations on the trip. Then he took the trip to, um, I think it was like in the Caribbean or, so, or something like that, in that place. And he ended up staying at a resort that's owned by a um, some sort of friend of his that's normally rented out. And for the duration he stayed, the trip would have been at market rates, a $90,000, roughly $90,000 stay. And then the message changed to Trudeau is staying at quote a uh, at no cost at a location owned by family friends, and you know like it's just from a public ethics standpoint, it just seems kind of unseemly that if you have your elected leaders accepting gifts worth ninety thousand um, uh, dollars, that's so that may be a problem. But the if had they had they not complicated it by the fact that they said he was going to pay for it himself, it just shows like a uh, a problem coordinating our story before um, before things before things happen. Who knows though? Like sometimes politicians like him are just they just do whatever they want and they just don't care. And it's like I want to take a vacation, had a rough year, you know, whatever. Um, but it really comes down to uh, even in that circumstance, don't. Make your life even harder by having your comms team, you know, tied knots when when it comes to this stuff. So I just thought it was an interesting uh, self self uh, own goal um, that he didn't really need to score on himself. Molly, uh, what's your take from south of the border on this? Uh, I know Canadian politics is ridiculous to people in the states, but what do you make of this? Well, uh, Justin Trudeau, when I heard, you know, when I heard the story, it, it, it just smacked of another story. U.S. Uh, Senator uh, in South Carolina, uh, Mark Sanford, when, you know, he was married, uh, his wife, Jenny, was at Sullivan Island, you know, vacationing, and no one could find the governor. But the governor's uh, spokesperson said, oh, he's in Argentina on a walking trip and I, you know, I can't get a hold of him. So this is a story like like John's mentioning when the spokesperson injects information, it immediately raises a suspicion because it feels like either a diversionary um, statement or they don't have a statement like they're left with nothing. And some spokesperson, you know, is saying something so. And also knowing, you know, with the divorce that maybe they thought there'd be even additional questions. So someone like me, I don't know, I'm a cynic on all this types, all this stuff. A couple, they're already divorcing. 
but they're together with the kids. So I don't know, maybe they didn't want scrutiny on the trip additional. So that's why they said that. I don't know. It smacks of all of it. Am I, but I'm the American though. Am I crazy? I mean, is it just, is it just cut and dry money? Well, you don't have any politicians taking large gifts there named Biden, do you? No, I have no idea what that is. No. <laughs> it, it's interesting where you look at just the character arc of like, like a hockey coach, right? They, 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 they say they get hired to get fired. And um, for the first couple of years, Justin Trudeau couldn't do anything wrong. And it, now it seems that no matter what it is, like people are just kind of done. We've been around for two terms. Um, there are, uh, you know, there was the famous Pierre Trudeau taking, you know, a, a walk out in the snow. And then he announced that he was stepping down. I would say you're probably going to hear that soon from Justin Trudeau. Mm. Paranak, what, what, am I out to lunch here? Or do you think that's likely in the cards? Who knows? Anything's possible at this, at this game. But you're right, Warren. Like he can't, he can't do anything without, it seems, drawing a huge amount of criticism. And the polls are all like decidedly against the liberals. And if the election were held today, they'd lose badly. So, but you know what? The, if the one thing the last um, five year plus years have taught us is that you cannot take anything for granted when it comes to this. And this year, I think I think one of my colleagues was saying that this year in 2024, half of the world's population and democracies have elections. And so um, it is, is going to be a really decisive uh, year globally for for this sort of thing. And anything can happen. I don't know if we're going to have an election in Canada this year, but um, uh, it seems like Canadians are certainly ready for it. John, is that what you talk about in your lunchroom with your colleagues? That's the lunchroom chatter? Yeah, among other things, yeah. <laughs> You're joking, but that's exactly what they talk about. <laughs> no, but can I add one point to this? And it's it's like it, it wraps it up in a bow, too, is when people know they're coming to an end, oftentimes their calms is around legacy mm. and what they mm -hmm. want people to remember. So maybe he was trying to engineer some other type of story or try to you know, diminish the story. I don't know, but that could have been at play as well. Anyone's guess. So yeah. uh, any parting thoughts, anything off topic, Molly, why don't you, uh, Ed, thank you very much for being with us again today, gracing us with your uh, presence. Super busy. If, if people don't know, Molly is uh, a star on TikTok and like all over the media. It's been so cool to watch you uh, just all over the place. Don't you have something, you have some big ones coming up, don't you? Can you talk about them or not? <laughs> yeah. Not really? Well, I, it feels so silly when you say that. I mean, my gosh, Warren, you and I are the exact it's, same. I mean, we're it, we're both in the same business, but we just use these different mediums. And yes, uh, TikTok brings uh, more visibility. But why I appreciate it is I get so much more feedback. And I love that people love the work that we do. Like people love PR. People love crisis management. And that's probably the you're best so good part at it, about it. There are a lot of people who do it, but you just have such a knack and your personality and your takes on things. It's uh, it's very entertaining. So it's been very cool to see. Um, where can people follow you if they're not right now or just if there's anything you want to plug before we go? Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, Warren, I mean, of course, you know, across the socials, but I made a slight, you know, uh, change and I am I now have a Patreon uh, because of TikTok. There are people that just form a community around you, which is what as we know, in the business that we're in, that's what happens. Uh, you know, they form community around ideas and people. And so now I do have a PR confidential, kind of, you know, membership at Patreon, which is fun. And then I'm also working on a book. 
Oh, very good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, basically, uh, basically what I talk about, you know, on TikTok, but people are fascinated by the machinations of PR and crisis management. Exactly what Reputation Town is about. See, you're Working title? Do you want to share it with us or is it under wraps? I do not have a working title at all. Okay. But thank you for asking and making me look like I'm an unprepared author. Well, that's nice to put the title on it last because then, you know, it fits. Yeah. Well, yeah, because we have to know the angle because it is so different. The genre, you know, where does it fall? Is it a is it a professional book? Is it is it a book about yeah. the profession or yeah. is it for the TikTok audience just fascinated? And really, it's going to be in the middle. It's how what we do professionally applies to people personally, which is why people really do like the work that we're all in, the business that we're all in. So I appreciate you inviting me and letting me chat with of you guys. Course. I love chatting with you guys. Anytime. John, any parting thoughts? No, I think Molly uh, can wrap things up beautifully. All right. That's a wrap for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you haven't taken an opportunity to do so, rate or review the show. Helps other people to find it in the sea of nine gajillion other podcasts. Thanks very much, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for stopping by. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, or recommend the show. See you next time.